0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Sarah Fay, is a professor at DePaul and Northwestern Universities, a critic, scholar, and creative writer. Her writing has appeared in many publications, including The New York Times, The Atlantic, and Time Magazine, as well as many literary publications such as Book Forum, Bomb, and The Paris Review, where she served as an advisory editor. She is the recipient of many awards and prestigious writing residencies, and is the author of the recently published memoir, Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses, and the founder of Pathological, The Movement, a public awareness campaign devoted to making people aware of the lack of scientific evidence for psychiatric diagnoses and the danger of identifying with an unproven mental illness. The book and the movement is the subject of today's interview. So, Sarah, welcome to Delving In.
1: Stuart, thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk with someone with your experience about all of this, so it'll be a great conversation.
0: Well, just to, to start out, I you know, engaged you for this interview after I read a little bit of the book and and read some reviews look in the New York Times, and I'm happy to say that uh, your book didn't disappoint. <laughs> I really enjoyed <laughs> but... it. And, and also, I was very impressed with the accuracy of what you um, talk about, with regard to diagnoses and how they came about and the whole history. You obviously did a lot of really careful research.
1: I did, I mean, the research was really a lifeline for me. It, it pulled me out. I actually started to do it um, when I was in crisis. So I was in crisis, I was suicidal at that point. This is when I was in my forties. And I had the diagnosis that I'd been given at that time was bipolar disorder. And I went to see a new psychiatrist, um, this is in the book, but. I went to see him, I had had a falling out with my old psychiatrist. I was out of medication, psychiatrist list, <laughs> and uh, in crisis and suicidal. And I went to this new psychiatrist, we had the 27 minute consultation and I waited for him to either proclaim a new diagnosis or reify and confirm the bipolar diagnosis. And instead he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And it just like blew my mind and, uh, you know, changed my entire life. I just remember leaving his office and it was brittly cold in Chicago. We were going through a polar vortex at the time. So really brittly cold and everything just looked crisper and harsher, but also more vivid to me. It was like, no one knows what I have no one knows. I've been getting diagnosis after diagnosis and no one knows. And so I decided I'm going to find out everything about mental health diagnoses. And the fact that I'd been in the mental health system for 25 years and I'd never heard of the DSM says a lot about how patients are educated. And that's what I really tried to do in the book was to give people all the information I wish I'd had.
0: And it sounds like your experience of being diagnosed was somewhat similar to going to a primary care doctor for a seven minute visit and coming out of, with a diagnosis and medication. It was like almost an instantaneous thing. I mean a single session, I don't know, I imagine maybe a half an hour, yeah, and maybe an hour and coming out immediately with a diagnosis. And I was just kind of appalled to to read this, I'm mean, not about you, but about them because that's certainly not necessarily the standard that I'm aware of, but I think I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm a psychologist So that's different.
1: It is. And, and one thing, you know, my book is very much not anti-psychiatry. My attack is on the DSM and how flawed it is. So I definitely don't have any animosity towards psychiatry in general. And partly that's because five of my six diagnoses came from my GP. They came from my primary care physician. And in reality, that's what's happening more and more. And so I'm hearing so much from patients who've read the book. And part of that has to do with the fact that that's their experience too. So GPs are now doing the majority of the diagnosing, not psychiatrists, and prescribing as well.
0: Yeah, that's because there's a tremendous shortage of psychiatrists yeah. I mean, in every state, and not, not, not just in rural areas.
1: Getting that access to care is so important. The problem with it is that GPs are writing 80% of antidepressant prescriptions and 50% of antipsychotic prescriptions to children. Yet they, on average, have about 32 hours of training in psychiatric diagnosis.
0: And they don't have time.
1: Yes. And they're doing it in 15 minutes. Yeah, or less. Exactly.
0: I, I was very uh, happy to to see that you were not uh, anti-psychiatry, uh, I mean, not that I'm necessarily being def- def- a defender of psychiatry, but it was very a balanced, really nuanced uh, approach. And I, I think you also recognized. I mean, you don't go into length about this, but you write that embracing a diagnosis can be a good thing, and mm-hmm. and certainly for some people it can be having a label, and and uh, even if the label doesn't mean much, really. It still feels like an explanation, and that can be very comforting to people.
1: Exactly. I have friends who, when they received a depression diagnosis, it was a great relief to them. And it was for me, too. I was always looking for an answer. There's no question that I had a mental illness for 25 years and that I battled it greatly. Um, I couldn't live independently for five years. I mean, I was suicidal. There's just no question that something was wrong. My problem was that I kept getting diagnosis after diagnosis, and I over-identified with all the negative aspects of a diagnosis. So it didn't come as a relief for very long. I started to see myself in the diagnosis and to see my life through a lens of diagnosis. Basically, I used it against myself, and I used it to limit myself. And that was what was problematic. I mean, another example of where a diagnosis can be a good thing is the autism community. Autism is a diagnosis, this is a huge generalization, but that community really uses their diagnosis to bolster themselves, to really rise up, to empower themselves, to get funding, to get services. So that's a great example of a diagnosis that's really working on behalf of people. That just wasn't my experience.
0: Maybe the difference is how long-term the problem is. You know, if if it's a short-term problem, let's say it's an episode of depression and a person is, finds a label, they stop worrying about it, they maybe become less self-absorbed into the diagnosis thereby, and then they can come out of it and then come back to what used to be normal. Whereas if it's more of an ongoing problem, I think it, it could be a, um, a problem to think of oneself as disabled.
1: I wonder what the, you know, kind of cause and effect chicken and egg of that is. My experience was, as I said, over-identifying. I think one disservice we're doing right now, I'm actually writing the sequel to Pathological (laughs) right now, which is great. I don't have a title yet, but, um, and it's about how I healed from mental illness. And so the disservice that we're doing to people greatly, a great disservice, is telling people that any diagnosis that they receive is lifelong no diagnosis has been proven to be lifelong, not even schizophrenia. I mean, in some ways, whether or not um, you know a psychiatrist or mental health professional is actually saying that, although I was told all of my diagnoses were lifelong and that I would only get worse. But even if that's not happening, the cultural conversation around mental health disorders is that they are lifelong and that you will always have them. And what I worry about is young people. And we are diagnosing more and more young people, especially that since we're in a mental health crisis among teens. And so I received my first diagnosis when I was 13. And part of the problem when you receive a diagnosis that young is you don't have the maturity. I didn't have the maturity to say, okay, this is just part of what I'm going through. This isn't me. I became my
0: diagnosis. Can become a kind of Pygmalion effect. And pygmalion effects can be either positive or negative depending on what the label is right so if you treat a child as really smart they're likely to rise to your expectations and if you treat them the other way they'll they'll uh, fall short and i think the same is true you know it's hard not to uh, and i know that you're not anti-psychiatry but it's hard not to at least speculate that there's a vested interest by drug companies in making these things chronic because that's really what makes it a billion dollar industry
1: That's a great consumer base. You want lifelong consumers. Absolutely, it behooves them to have that. And I don't doubt that they are part of the reason, maybe the majority of the reason, that that is the cultural conversation. Big Pharma is is in some ways very fascinating and, of course, very disturbing in the way that they have used the DSM to their advantage. I mean, all The research I've done has said they aren't actually creating diagnoses. They aren't at the table, really. Yes, 70% of psychiatrists who authored the DSM-5, the most recent edition, had ties to big pharma. So there's conflict of interest all over the place. But they don't actually have their hands in the pot that directly. But what was fascinating, what I found out is that there's something called disease awareness campaigns or what they call marketing the diagnosis. And it's both sinister and brilliant. But what pharmaceutical companies do is they develop a drug, they flip through the pages of the DSM, they find a diagnosis to attach it to, they get FDA approval, and then they don't publicize the drug, they publicize the disorder. They create a consumer base for the disorder. So an example of this was GlaxoSmithKline in 2001. Paxil was not getting the kind of attention that Prozac had gotten. Prozac had kind of swept the market on antidepressants. And so they needed a new diagnosis. And so they flipped through. They found this very obscure diagnosis called generalized anxiety disorder. (laughs) You might have heard of it because only 1% of the population had it at that time and they publicized it. And now it's, depending on what statistics you read, somewhere between 11% and 17% of the population receives a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder, all because of these techniques that big pharma uses to make the diagnosis seem more widespread than it is. They pay doctors to say, yes, this is everywhere. And so many people have this disorder, they just don't know it.
0: Yeah, for our listeners who don't know, I mean, generalized anxiety disorder basically is someone who's a chronic warrior. It's just putting a new label on something that's quite common. You, know, you don't have to have a high degree of anxiety just as long as it's enough, you know.
1: And it wasn't always that way. So in the DSM IV, your worries, you had to be a chronic warrior, but you also had to worry about unrealistic things. So it had to be very unrealistic, your worries. They had to be almost like, incredibly far-fetched, and they removed the word unrealistic. So now <laughs> you just have to worry. But we all worry. I mean, I'm, I'm a pro at worrying. <laughs> I was born to worry.
0: <laughs> Even the word unrealistic is so vague. I mean, it, it really can be smushed into any level. All of the criteria are subjective, as as you rightly put uh, point out. There are no blood tests. There's no imaging. There's nothing that can actually show that a person has anything even even bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, there's no test. And I think that may be one of the reasons why psychiatry is a low choice specialty for graduating doctors to go into. Because it doesn't have the science base, it doesn't have the those labs and imaging studies. I mean, there's, there's not really a whole lot of solid science in it. And that gives it less prestige within the medical community.
1: Exactly. And I think one, you know, just from I've had an amazing experience publicizing this book. My publicist and editor and I really thought, well, we're gonna get a lot of pushback from psychiatry. And it's been the opposite. Psychiatry has been so welcoming of my book. They've endorsed my book, which was not what we thought was gonna happen. And I've had the real pleasure. I mean, I've gotten to know a little bit um, Thomas Insel, who was former head of the National Institute for Mental Health, and he's become a real champion. He's always been critical of the DSM and mental health diagnoses. But also I appeared on NPR with Paul Applebaum, who's the current head of the DSM-5 steering committee. And so like that's just amazing. And, and he was, again, very open to what I was saying, which is simply that... We need to bridge the gap between what psychiatry knows and what the public knows. So everything you just said about the science, the public doesn't know that. Supposedly 80% of the American public still believes in the chemical imbalance theory, which is now called the chemical imbalance myth, which was debunked 20 years ago.
0: Which is still being used in advertising. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think what you pointed to is that there are many psychiatrists who are themselves uncomfortable with the lack of, of research-based what they do, but they just sort of trapped that, you know, that's the main tool that they have. Many psychiatrists are not even trained to do therapy anymore. So you sort of do what you can with what you have. And I've met psychiatrists who say, no, I, I'm not really treating disorders. I'm treating symptoms. They They know that. Yeah and and the drugs themselves no longer are specifically attached to attached to disorders anyway i mean antidepressants are used for anxiety ocd all sorts of things like antipsychotics are used as as auxiliary medications for depression and so like the medications themselves are no longer targeted in such a specific way
1: exactly and i think that's why i wasn't anti-psychiatry in the sense that i really have actually come away with more respect for psychiatry after writing this book, even though I am very much don't pull any punches with the DSM, but they're dealing with so much and they're trying to grapple with so much. We're coming to them with our psychic and emotional pain and we're asking them, at least I was, to heal us, to heal me. And that's what I really, really wanted. And so you've got a psychiatrist who's dealing with a very flawed diagnostic tool who's trying to negotiate what's wrong with the brain, which has 10 billion neurons. And then what's the mind? We don't even know. I mean, they have a tall order in front of them in terms of what they're trying to do professionally. And I think sometimes there is too much hubris involved, um, that many psychiatrists do suffer from that. And I certainly had a very dangerous encounter with one. and, And that was the problem. It wasn't that he didn't want to help me but he was so arrogant that he would not give up the bipolar diagnosis. He just wanted to prove it right. And he couldn't see the medications were making me sick and that kind of thing.
0: Let's talk a a bit more about the assumption of a neurological cause of psychiatric illnesses. I, I think that's, it's such an embedded assumption. And I think the reason is that obviously whatever a person's experience is, is coming from the brain. But of course, that's all of their experience, not just psychiatric experience. Right. So sleeping, wakefulness, uh, interest, uh, boredom, any experience is in the brain. So there's an assumption that, well, mental illness is in the brain, therefore it must be neurological, but it's kind of a tautology in a way. I mean, of course it's in the brain, but that doesn't mean there's something wrong with the brain in some kind of structural way that that's the leap that I think people make and it's really not clear at all. And and the only kind of imaging that there is that's at all suggestive are fMRIs, which look at brain metabolism. But you don't know if that's cause or effect. Is that really a structural defect? No, not really. That's just what's going on in the brain where it's being activated. And it's not really a whole lot of, of an explanation. It's tricky. I
1: mean, one thing... I can say with some certainty again I'm not a mental health professional I'm not a psychiatrist I'm not a researcher but that we will never find the biological cause to DSM diagnoses because DSM diagnoses were created by humans they were just constructed right about by members of the APA sitting around a table you know decided what depression is it's these 5 of 9 symptoms this is what you have to have in order to get this diagnosis it's not located in the body. These diagnoses are did not come from research and data in that way. Even looking at imaging, they don't use any of the brain imaging that they have to really fully construct a diagnosis. But the one thing that I think is pro- hopefully going to happen and that I think is going to happen is that mental illness and some of the quote unquote symptoms, which are really Part of the human condition, but psychosis, suicidality, depression, anxiety—we might find traces of them in the brain. Like we might be able to locate that. I I think that is possible.
0: Uh, Was it Thomas Insel? Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. You know, so I I know that his criticism of DSM-5 is that we should be moving on to a more neurologically based diagnostic system. We should find what's wrong in the brain, and then it may have more than one manifestation and behavior. The problem is that we're no one near doing that so it, it's it's a hope it's a, you know it's a hope on his part to ground it more scientifically and there is this assumption that well it's in the brain let's find it it's not it's not so easy it's so it's so incredibly complicated
1: absolutely and and he's gone through a remarkable change which i admire so much so he just put out a book called healing which i highly recommend our path from mental illness to mental health and when he was head of the NIMH, he gave $20 billion to research to prove that DSM diagnoses or mental illness, one or the other, are biological. He gave very little to treatment and recovery. And in his new book, he now says, I'm sorry, you know, mea culpa, I made a mistake. And for a man of his stature to say that is pretty impressive he's saying you know that going down that biological road we are leaving people out we are not treating patients by doing that and we need to put money and time and focus into treatment and recovery
0: yeah so i, I think in a way he's sort of reaching the end of an open uh, uh, drawbridge you know and hoping to jump over to the other side but there's no other side to jump over to yet in a biological sense we could go back to the in time to the earlier dsms like for instance, the dsm 2 called everything a reaction. Now, calling it a reaction makes it sound like you I mean, it, it implies that you're reacting to something in the environment or to something in your life. Maybe you're not coping with it adequately. Maybe the reaction is not so functional. But nevertheless, it's a reaction. And the current DSM has two such diagnoses still left in it. And that's PTSD, which assumes there's a traumatic event. And the other one would be reactive attachment disorder, which is also a kind of trauma diagnosis, but in infancy. And those, I I like those two diagnoses for that reason because it implies that there's something that's been experienced that is very difficult to process and leads to certain patterns that are hard to undo, but it's automatically implying a context beyond biology.
1: And I I so want to go back to the reaction days as well. (laughs) I'm a big proponent of that. The reality is there's always been this battle between neurosis and... used to be called psychosis or biology Um, what's interesting is i've gotten to know uh, nasir gami a little bit he's at tufts and also um, harvard and he actually is coming out with a paper in the fall where he proposes an alternative to the dsm but the the basic premise of it is um, he uses his specialty which is bipolar disorder as an example of how we might change a diagnosis so it's not, no longer fully following the DSM guidelines, and then suggest that we might do that with other diagnoses. The one thing that's so exciting, I think, about what he says, and it sounds counterintuitive, but he really asks for bipolar disorder to be called bipolar illness, and the reason is he feels there is enough scientific data to call it an illness, and that would require all the other diagnoses in the DSM to measure up to that kind of research. Now bipolar has the most research on it and the most data. I mean, manic depression has been around forever. We know it's a mental illness to exhibit those kind of behaviors and patterns of thought and emotions.
0: Right. I mean, that's particularly that's particularly what's now called bipolar one, which is when someone has a psychotic mania. And that back in the eighties, when I was in school and graduate school, that was one in 10,000 people had that kind of bipolar. Now it's three to 4%. So if you can get it more and more specific, then yeah, it seems to be more of a thing. But as soon as you make this huge umbrella, then it starts to get very diffused. Before we go any further, though, I want to talk just a little bit about the structure of your book. And I think every review has done this, too. So this is not an original uh, way of thinking of it. But your book consists of three strands. You have the personal story of your suffering, ordeal, and resilience then you have the critique of the DSM, which of course we've been talking about. And then at the end of each chapter, a seeming digression, you explain the rule of each punctuation mark. (laughs) Now you are, uh, you know, uh, a writing teacher, so that sort of makes sense. But I I found it a little bit weird, I have to say, but also (laughs) fascinating. Uh, In a way, it was a kind of a contrast to the DSM. You have this very orderly system of punctuation marks, and uh, there's widespread agreement about how to use them. <laughs> you know? And and, was, and
1: disagreement,
0: yeah. And disagreements, but it's you kind of hard-won hard uh, customs about writing that makes sense. And I think what you were going through and what, how you described it, it's, a lot of things didn't make sense probably for a long time.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny. the way, I love the way you said that because pretty much every review, every person I've talked to kind of goes, and then there's that punctuation part. <laughs> Even the New York Times review, they had this wonderful summary and then the last sentences, and then there's this stuff about punctuation. Everyone just kind of throws it in there. I'm really lucky as a writer that I got an amazing agent. You know, she's a powerhouse and could very well have said, you've got to cut this. No one, this is too weird. And I'm very lucky. She loved it. She just thought this is so different. And it it gives breathing room in the story. My story is so intense. And then there's this information on the mental health diagnoses. And so it allows for kind of a moment for the reader to go into a different world. But it also made sense to me. When I received my first diagnosis, I'm 13 years old. And a couple years later, I had worshipped my English teacher in high school. He was very professional. We weren't friends the way sometimes students and teachers are today. But I just idolized him so much. He was brilliant and taught us crime and punishment and Joyce's Ulysses, which I thought I understood, you know, as a teenager. <laughs> you think you know everything. But I was I was anorexia or told I had anorexia at the time, and was very ill. I mean, my hair was falling out and my nails were brittle and my skin was cracking. All the classic signs, my weight was dangerously low. I was in and out of outpatient treatments. Treatment programs, and I had to finish a term paper for him. And I failed it, unsurprisingly. I mean, I could barely think straight. And he, called me into his office and he said, you know, he had the list of all the red marks of what I'd done wrong. And then he looked at me and he said, and you use commas like you're decorating a Christmas tree. <laughs> and I did. I would just sort of arbitrarily put them in. I didn't know how, you know, I knew none of the rules of grammar. And so I was so embarrassed because I idolized him so much. And I really spent the rest of my years learning punctuation and really knowing it inside and out to the point that I was an ESL tutor and I was a, a writing as you said a writing teacher for many many years of all grade levels including university and that became an asset for me punctuation gives us meaning it's a way that we make meaning easier and communication easier and that's what the dsm attempts to do it, it's it's well intended it's just a mess in terms of the number of diagnoses we have and the lack of evidence to support them
0: which is mushroom getting bigger and bigger yeah exactly yeah I, you know i was thinking that you know the one of the reasons that's somewhat legitimate for the dsm is is to have a shorthand you know to be able to refer to things quickly something like anorexia that could be very useful because it's such a dangerous condition whatever it is you know medically dangerous
1: I think it's useful across the board. What I what I discovered in my research, which was fascinating to me, I in the 19th century and certainly 20th century, from the majority of it up until the 1970s, patients didn't know their diagnoses. They were just treated for symptoms. They were just treated for malaise or whatever it might be that's going on, or psychosis or anxiety. And that, to me, is attractive because I over-identified with my diagnoses. I still have a diagnosis. I don't know what it is. I've asked my psychiatrist. The I don't know psychiatrist is still my psychiatrist. And I've asked him not to tell me because I wanted to live my life outside of a diagnosis. Prior to that, every painful emotion, every distressing thought, every unpleasant behavior. I attribute it to, that's my bipolar, my bipolar, like I owned it, you know, or that's my depression, that's my ADHD. Instead of just experiencing it within the context of my life and that not knowing the diagnosis forced me to do that. And I had to learn what emotions are. I didn't even know what an emotion was.
0: (laughs) And I think that probably the reason for that is that the, the psychiatry as a whole, and this is overgeneralizing probably, feels that the step number one is to get the patient to accept the diagnosis so that they'll take their medication. It'll make them more compliant as they use their word. You know that if they don't know why they're taking the medication, maybe they won't take it. If they know that they have this very serious condition and has a name, we know all about it supposedly, and then you take your medication and you'll be better. Not fully better because it's lifelong, but you'll be better enough to function.
1: And there is sort of the rub that I'm I'm looking at in my new book how can you tell people that these diagnoses are lifelong with no proof and expect them to take their medication? I mean, imagine I actually, when I was healing, I broke my ankle and the sort of scene that I, I depict in the book is going in to see the orthopedist. Is that mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, orthopedic yeah. doctor? And imagine if he'd said, you have pain, here's a boot to put on, you'll never recover. (laughs) (laughs) He couldn't even tell me that I'd broken my ankle. I would get out of the boot. I mean, why would I ever take the quote unquote medication if I thought I'd never heal? Like, What's the point in some ways, Um, even if it hurt? And so I just think it's really fascinating to look at the damage we're doing or kind of undermining ourselves by letting some of these myths get stay out there and not inform people that, one, they're not lifelong, and two, yes, compliance is an issue, but if you're over-identifying with the negative aspects of a diagnosis, that's not going to serve you either.
0: Well, I have a couple of somewhat personal, more personal questions, so let me know if if you're okay with the questions. The the first one is that, It strikes me that you have an unusually high tolerance for pain and discomfort, (laughs) very unusually high tolerance, both for physical and psychological pain. And how does that and your embrace of solitude, which is another factor, figure into both the problems that you face and have faced in the past and maybe currently and the recovery from them?
1: It's, first of all, I love when people ask me if they can ask personal questions because I'm like, I just put my whole life in a book. I, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing personal about you know left to ask, but it's an interesting kind of interpretation. I always felt that I wasn't strong, and that is a misinterpretation on my part of what it means to be strong versus what it means to endure pain right? Are those the same thing? And I hadn't thought of it in those terms before, but I think you're right. And I don't know if other people with mental illness experience this, but you become accustomed to psychic and emotional pain to some degree, and you get used to it and it you tolerate more, or at least I shouldn't say you, but I did. I could tolerate more and more and more of it. And physical pain too i mean i think you're right i do tend to push myself in in that respect as well it you know with exercise and and other things i think certainly when i was going through my diagnosis of bipolar disorder. I also didn't sleep and would exercise a lot and
0: run and that sort of thing. Well, running on a on a terrible blister and running and running and running despite this blister, I think most people would stop.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. Those are people without mental illness, I think. But that that sort of shows, or at least to me, looking back at it, the disconnect that occurs. I think my definition of mental illness is a break with reality. Any kind of so. For instance, I re- we think of that as being psychosis, but I, I like a more general view of that. For instance, I think suicidality is a break with reality because you, our brains are designed to predict danger and keep us alive. That's it. <laughs> That's all we get. Not happiness. Not you know anything else. It's just that. So to desire to die is a break with reality. It's, it's And I'm, I'm not condemning it, I went through it, I know how painful it is. I've touched that very, very dark place and I don't want anyone to have to go there. But it's just interesting to think of it along those lines. And I think when you do have that break with reality, you aren't taking care of yourself. It's, it's just you don't see yourself in the same way that other people who don't have that disconnect see themselves often.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if I fully agree, but certainly there's a break with kind of basic instincts, you know, of self-preservation. And, you know, particularly with your first diagnosis, anorexia, I mean, you really pushed that quite a long, dangerous way. It's lucky that you were able to turn that around with, with help because it's a, it was a high lethality to people who undergo that pattern of distress or however you want to call it.
1: And I'm lucky I healed from it. I eventually did stop that disordered eating as much as I think any woman in this society with the pressures that are put on us can um, and looking at our bodies. But what's interesting is with that diagnosis, the reason why I question my own experience and how much I over-identified with the diagnosis and how much that made me worse is that when i received the diagnosis of anorexia my parents were divorcing and i was going to a new high school i was incredibly sad and i was terrified and i had no way to articulate those emotions i had no way to process anything and i stopped eating i had a pit in my stomach it was like a thick gross pit and i just didn't want to eat and eventually couldn't hold down food or water. This was after an eighth grade trip. So I had been gone and had stopped eating completely. And when I came home and couldn't hold down food and water, my parents rightly took me to hospital and we saw eventually saw my pediatrician. He put me on a scale and he said, she has anorexia, a word I'd never heard before. But the issue then was I did not have the classic signs of anorexia other than weight loss. So I was not counting calories, I was not obsessively weighing myself, and I did not think I was fat, I did not have body dysmorphia. But what happened in that moment was I attached, oh, feeling sad, sick to my stomach, don't want to eat, all of these thoughts and feelings and behaviors to a disorder, and that stuck with me. And then I did learn how to become an anorexic, partly from being in outpatient programs. We know that there's a kind of social contagion that can go on, particularly with eating disorders. And so I really learned also from a book that I read, You know, a lot of eating disorder memoirs are sort of considered cheat sheets. And I read a book like that and really learned how to be an anorexic.
0: Yeah, so you're really pointing out how kind of socially embedded even a, as medical sounding a diagnosis as anorexia. I mean, there's the whole societal pressure to be thin, which I don't know if that figured in so much for you, but that's a very common component of anorexia. And then also the, the, the way it's embedded in what was going on in your family life. You know, so it wasn't just pure biology.
1: And there's the, I think, classic explanation, or one of the classic explanations for anorexia is that it's about control. And I don't doubt that to some degree I was trying to control my environment, certainly trying to control my body and my emotions since my emotions were coming out in a stomach ache, which, by the way, I still get. <laughs> so, and I still don't want to eat. It hasn't, that hasn't changed. That's still my coping mechanism for grief or for any kind of intense sadness. At the time, and I, I think maybe people are better about this. I mean, this was the 1980s, and I just was not given the, the vocabulary that I have now or the, a way to process it. The way I do now. And it may have been my age as well, that I just couldn't do it at 12 or 13 years old.
0: So it's almost as if your stomach was your life stage, you know, that you were depicting what was going on, and there was a battle going on in your, in your stomach. Yep. <laughs> and, and there's also a possibility, I mean, I, I don't know, but it's a possibility that your parents reacted to your, your anorexia in a way that brought them together. And so without even thinking it through, that could have been something that reinforced it.
1: I wish that were the case, but that did not happen.
0: (laughs) So. (laughs) No, no. It was an attempt, maybe an attempt, an unconscious attempt. I mean, that's just, you know, just sort of possibility. I'm not saying this is what happened, but, uh, but it's, but that's one way that it's embedded in a social context.
1: I understand that idea of, I know that that's often, you know, posited and I'm sure there's some truth to it that, that someone with anorexia is trying to, you know, bring parents of divorce together. I just do not recall that in any way being in my thinking. There really wasn't any ulterior motive. And I know you're saying unconscious, but I I sort of always hesitate with that because I was so overwhelmed by my emotions and by everything that was going on. I couldn't have been that even unconsciously calculating.
0: (laughs) No, no, no. And the the calculating, if if you can call it that, which I really don't like calling it that, is not just in the person with anorexia, but with the whole family you know, so back in the early days of family therapy, we talked about anorexic families, not individuals.
1: I know. And that really, unfortunately damaged my family. So that way of being treated. So we did have family therapy once I was hospitalized and my father wouldn't come. He was just, he said, I'm being blamed. My mother was blamed. You know, she ended up, you know, she was in a terrible place because of treating it that way. And one thing I'm very deliberate about in the book is that my family did everything right. They did everything right. There was nothing they could have done differently that would have quote unquote saved me. Families have it terribly in these situations. They're treated terribly. They're not treated as the heroes that they are. And my family is definitely the hero of my book. They really just, I pushed them away. I mean, I behaved in ways that I I wish I could take back. And they just didn't give up on me, but they didn't have the answers and they couldn't cure me and they couldn't save me because no one could.
0: Yeah. And I think you rightly rightly point out that there have been misconceptions in the past about, uh, for instance, autism being caused by a refrigerator mom, you know, a cold mom and uh, schizophrenia was supposed to be a schizophrenogenic mom. Always the mom, you know, always the mother. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I, I think it's good that we've gotten away from that. You know, on the other hand, I think when families are in, in therapy together, you can sometimes marshal resources that you can't with just an individual. And it's certainly the, the, the blaming is never helpful for anybody. Yeah. Well, one other question I had was about alcohol. You don't describe it as being one of the six diagnoses, which, if I'm not mistaken, are anorexia. Uh, major depression, ADHD, some kind of anxiety disorder, OCD, and then bipolar. So those, <laughs> those are the six. And alcohol <laughs> yeah. abuse or dependence or what have you, alcoholism is not one of them. And yet from your descriptions in the book, it sounds like it was a really big component of what was going on.
1: Easily, I could have been called an alcoholic. I probably met all of the criteria and then some for my 20s. I stopped drinking when I was 30. And I would never go back to it, regardless of how healthy I am, that's just a terrible idea for someone. But I don't consider it to be one of my diagnoses because I never treated it as a diagnosis. I never saw myself as an alcoholic. I just quit drinking one day and I never went to AA, I never I never, I never portrayed myself to myself in that way. I think to have a diagnosis, you have to accept a diagnosis. Two parties are involved. It's your self-reported symptoms and a clinician's opinion, and that's it.
0: Well, or, or, or it can be given to oneself also, based on what you read on the internet.
1: Yes, absolutely, self-diagnosis. You're right. So it can be one person, the self, but you're always you have to accept the diagnosis. In in an odd way, we can just say, "Look, here's your tumor. You have cancer, and it's objectively proven." But you have to be in agreement. I mean, you could say that yes to internalize the the cancer diagnosis, but you absolutely have to be in agreement with the diagnosis to receive it, psychiatric diagnosis.
0: To, in other words, to receive it and to take it in.
1: To take it in, exactly. To validate it. You ha- we have to validate the diagnosis because there's no external measure to validate it.
0: Right, so for Pygmalion to come to life, it has to be viewed by the artist, by the sculptor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing I wanted to talk about next is about what is psychiatric diagnosis if if it's not really disease or a disorder and, and it's just arbitrary wouldn't the term be syndrome and you know we have other syndromes strangely enough a lot of them are attributed to women more than men one of them being irritable bowel syndrome another chronic fatigue syndrome and another one polycystic ovary syndrome and the last one apparently used to be that you had to have all three criteria Irregular periods, enlarged ovaries with lots of tiny cysts and evidence of extra male hormones. But then at some time in the recent past, they decided, I don't know who decided, that it would be just two out of three instead of all three. And the incidence went from one out of 20 to one out of five, which hmm. sounds a lot like psychiatric diagnoses. It does. <laughs> and all, all three of them, I think, because they're not really understood, there's an, there's an assumption that oh, it must be at least partly psychological. And especially chronic fatigue, I think, was often thought by doctors as being entirely psychological. I think that's shifted somewhat.
1: Yeah. I I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the DSM uses the term syndrome in its definition of what a disorder is. So a disorder is defined as a syndrome. And people have taken issue with that. I mean, your question is a great one, but I don't think mental illness is arbitrary. So the way I see it is that there's this umbrella called mental illness, and it's been around since antiquity, since the written record of man, that it is a real thing. It is absolutely 100% in existence. And the diagnoses are what we're using to try to order that, what we call mental illness. And so those are constructed and whether or not we call them disorders or syndromes or illnesses or diseases. I mean, the problem with a disease is by definition, you have to be able to say the cause, the treatment, the prognosis, and those things we don't have with psychiatric diagnosis. We can't say what the cause is definitively. We don't know what the best treatment is and we cannot say how this will progress.
0: Yeah, a syndrome is a little bit analogous to a constellation in astronomy. You know, the stars look like they belong to a group, and in fact, they're not at all close to each other. They just look like they are from our vantage point. And uh, so a syndrome is just a bunch of symptoms that tend to go together, but maybe not, and and it, not necessarily all of them. It just could be a subset of them, and we don't really understand it. So we'll, it just you know, let's just lump them together.
1: I think that would be better.
0: <laughs> a better term. Yeah, and my way of thinking is that the most important thing is to help the person understand what is uh, blocking them in their in their lives you know what's what's going on that they the, what goals do they have that are being thwarted and how are they suffering the exact symptoms is not really the point it's what's going on in their lives that's the point i think
1: and that symptoms can be indicators you know as you're saying of of okay this depression occurs as a result of this or you have the kind of free-floating depression and anxiety that I had. And it's funny, I was walking this morning and I was thinking, and you may know more about this, you might actually be able to speak to it, but I wondered if you don't process anxiety or if you don't process depression or sadness or or not just anxiety, but any of the emotions, do they build up? Do you then kind of build up that emotion and it becomes somewhat even more toxic than it than it once was. I was putting off processing anxiety because I didn't know how to do it and depression and so I kind of wonder if that is a, a
0: a real thing. Yeah, I think there's something to that and I guess the word process is a bit slippery. You know what does that mean to process emotions? But in my experience, particularly with depression and anxiety, there there's a kind of a fear of having those experiences. And so if you're not just anxious, but you're anxious about being anxious, like for instance, particularly with panic disorder, if you're terrified of the next panic attack, then you start becoming preoccupied with every little tiny sign of what could trigger one. And then you be, go into a kind of a rabbit hole of, of self-absorption, a self-absorption of the type of looking for for when is the next bout of suffering going to happen. And I think also with depression that you can, if you hate your depression and are fighting your depression and wish it weren't there without necessarily looking at the causes, but maybe even if you're looking at the causes, you're just desperate to get out of the depression. And the more desperate you are, the more it tends to hang around. So it's a kind of a paradox. On the one hand, you do need to sometimes figure out what's causing it in terms of life experience. On the other hand, if you, if you become too obsessed with it, it can make it worse. And one of the theories I have for how antidepressants work, the placebo component, which, you know, placebo component is probably at least half, maybe 80% of the effect, according to research, that part of what it does is it allows you to take a break from that self-obsessing. Oh, I no longer need to figure out my depression, figure out how to get out of it. I'll let the drug cure me instead, and I can relax. And then lo and behold, you start focusing on people and your activities, and the, the depression sort of lifts on its own at that point for many people.
1: Yeah, I can completely see that in my own experience. And then it gets more confusing because we aren't really supposed to be on antidepressants for 12 years. (laughs) They were tested for three months, limited amounts of time to get you out of a rough patch. And there should be an exit strategy, or at least one considered of when are we going to titrate off this? And unfortunately, you know, I didn't discover that until 12 years later. So when I tried to go off my antidepressant, the withdrawal
0: was just horrendous. Which can resemble the depression itself. And then you you think, oh, I must need this drug.
1: And in some ways, I mean, I, you know, as I said, I consider myself healed from mental illness, but I'm still on medication and someone could argue, oh, that means you still have it. But I really believe, or I think I know that my body is dependent on these drugs at this point. And my psychiatrist and I have talked about it. And so to go off them, I have a very low side effect profile. He has assured me it's not going to, do anything,
0: which I don't believe, but. We don't have to research on that one way or the other. Exactly. Nobody does 30 year or, 30 or follow up uh, longitudinal research on this stuff.
1: Yeah. And I'm just risking it because I'm not willing to risk the withdrawal. So again, it, it's just going to be tricky in terms of how medications not only work as we're trying to treat the diagnosis or the illness, but as we're getting well as well.
0: Well, I think we have enough time left to talk about your movement, the uh, pathological, the movement. So tell us well, how you got the idea and what your hopes are for, for it. And you've mentioned it a little bit so far, but how's it, how's it going?
1: It's great. I love it. And part of it was that my book is a memoir, and so it doesn't have action steps. That's not what a memoir is supposed to do. Although I do include all the research about mental health diagnoses to try to, again, give people everything That I wish I'd known. So I wanted to give people action steps. What could we do? Okay, you've just sort of obliterated the validity of, or you've explained to me that DSM diagnoses aren't valid and are largely unreliable. What am I supposed to do with this? And my main kind of ambition now is really to, again, bridge that gap so that the public knows okay, the diagnosis that my five year old daughter just received deserves some scrutiny. You know, we don't know everything. And to say that she's bipolar, that she has a bipolar disorder, we can think about that, right? We can be really cautious with this diagnosis or any diagnosis. And Pathological the Movement, what we tried to do was present four facts that would make navigating a diagnosis, if not easier, than certainly to empower people who've been given a diagnosis or their loved ones have knowing these four facts they would have more information to be able to make that informed decision so the first fact is that dsm diagnoses or the mental health diagnoses that we receive are really just designations that clinicians use to try to get you the
0: best treatment and to get, and to get and to get the treatment to paid for by insurance
1: <laughs> absolutely although i've read that only 50% of psychothera- psychologists and psychiatrists actually take insurance anymore. And one thing my psychiatrist and I have talked about is he doesn't take insurance. So his, I don't know, came from the freedom of not having to diagnose me. I mean, it's really a luxury that I was able to do that. And I and I see that luxury that a lot of people don't have, and and that's too bad. But yeah, just to get the designation and then also to get you treatment and continue treatment. The second fact is, and we've gone back and forth on this, I have an advisory board, an amazing advisory board of psychologists and psychiatrists and um, people who can tell me what really is useful (laughs) from the professionals from their viewpoint. But the second one is always get a second opinion with psychiatric diagnoses, it's really important. I do understand that's a luxury too. I've been through periods without health insurance. Um, But one thing I learned, and I know this is hard to question our clinicians, but one thing I learned is that if you have a GP and that GP gives you a diagnosis, you can ask the GP to consult a psychiatrist. It's not foolproof, but you can sort of get a second opinion, most likely it will validate what the GP said, but you can at least go that extra step through the GP without actually seeing another um, clinician. And then the third fact is that chemical imbalance theory is scientifically invalid and has been for some time. And then the fourth one is that no DSM diagnosis has been proven to be lifelong and that we can recover.
0: Right. And on that last point, that's very much true. In fact, one of my uh, interviews was with a director of a uh, home-like setting for psychosis and including schizophrenia. And, and it, it, this is a model called Soteria, which was founded by the first director of research for NIMH in schizophrenia. So, you know, the top, top, top credential. And he, he set up houses of this sort in California and did comparison research. And it came out that the success rate of remission of symptoms was much better than treatment as usual. They used only drugs as, as needed, but usually a much smaller amount and less chronically. And his work was basically not, not that it wasn't recognized. It was kind of, I think, deliberately ignored by the psychiatric establishment because it was really, it was really threatening. So th- this interview that I did was with psychiatrists in, in Israel and where it's becoming actually the dominant model blessed by the Israeli Psychiatric Association. Wow. Yeah, one one thing that we didn't mention, uh, one word we didn't mention, which I think is really important is stigma. And I think you point out in your book that having something considered a biological disability, on one hand, people think, oh, that makes me not responsible for it. It's just something that happened to me and therefore there shouldn't be stigma. But in fact, surveys have shown that actually the stigma is higher because the person is now viewed as disabled. Mm -hmm. If they're disabled, well, then they really... And it's permanent. There's no hope. So one thing that I think maybe your movement can help do is to t- maybe remove some of that stigma, treat it much more matter-of-factly and not as some kind of definitive flaw that you have in your biology.
1: Exactly. And I actually just... I wrote an op-ed for the LA Times about how mental health awareness has failed in that respect. It's meant to decrease stigma, but it focuses so much on diagnoses that it's again, sort of reinforcing this idea that the diagnosis defines you. It does, it's not, there are not mental health awareness campaigns aren't focusing on treatments, right? You you just go online and you take a test and you self-diagnose and then you go see someone and you get a diagnosis and you get the medication. I mean, that's the pathway that most patient advocacy groups has you follow.
0: Yeah, I once did a little informal survey at the schools uh, where I used to work, and uh, I I was required to label a a student as to whether they had a serious emotional disturbance or not, SED. And I asked, well, what does SED stand for? Is it disturbed, is it disabled? Now, officially it's disturbed. And I I was asking, well, which sounds worse to you? (laughs) Disturbed or disabled? (laughs) And I thought disabled sounded worse because it sounded permanent, but most people thought disturbed sounded worse because it sounded like something out of a movie. Mm-hmm. And you know that's, that's someone's going to do something awful because they're disturbed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I, I wound up thinking that actually the best label would be emotionally disturbing because that's giving, <laughs> that's giving responsibility to the teachers and parents who are you know irritated by this kid. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so the, the the goal then would be to find the kind of teacher who wouldn't be so ir- irritated but can be patient, yeah, exactly. Well, do you have any any last thoughts or things that we didn't cover that uh, might be helpful for our listeners?
1: No, I mean, I think there's so much to this and we could go on and on. Right now, my head is partly in the next book and just wanting it to be out so we can all start to look at how are we going to recover. I mean, dismantling diagnoses only gets us so far. But the point of it is by dismantling my diagnosis, I got some distance from it. And that allowed me to heal, which entailed a lot of other components. And I go through that in my new book. Uh, There were all sorts of things that I did to heal. And some of it is like Soteria and and what you mentioned, which is place is so important. I mean, I live in an amazingly beautiful, albeit small, apartment. (laughs) And one study found that of your environment, the most important aspect of any environment is that there's a view. doesn't matter what the view is of, but I lived for you know at least a year and a half, and this was when I was in crisis, looking out onto a brick wall. <laughs> so it was almost, but now I'm in this place that has a view and it is really a warm, welcoming environment. And think about how many people suffer from mental illness and serious mental illness who are on the street. Who have no home, who are in jail? How can we expect them to recover when we know, because of places like Soteria that have given people places sanctuaries to recover? How can we expect anyone to recover?
0: Right, that makes sense. So it sounds like your sequel is going to be more um, have more guidance in it.
1: Yeah, people. and it's a lot happier.
0: I'm a lot happier. Okay,
1: <laughs> it's, it, have- there's some humor, actually.
0: Wonderful. Do you have a title?
1: No, I wish I would take suggestions. I mean, I keep <laughs> thinking, what's the opposite of, of long, lifelong? What's the, you know, so something, but it will not be uh, a word like pathological that a lot of people don't know, and it will not be misdiagnoses, which is very hard to pronounce. So it will be, one <laughs> those are the two requirements.
0: Well, I'll have to think about that one and get back to you. <laughs> you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to delving in Sarah Fay recently authored a memoir called Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses, and the the founder of Pathological, the movement. It's been just a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.